So I'm going to say, with all due respect to Gary V, you're going to die is not a framework. It's an Instagram meme. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Laura, welcome to the Better Wealth Show. Hi, Caleb. How you doing? I'm doing phenomenal. We were just talking about our love for Brian Wish, and I'm a big fan of him, and he's connected me with some pretty incredible human beings that we've we've had conversations about best-selling books and missions and nonprofits, and, and I know that this is going to be another incredible conversation. So one of my favorite ways to open this, we were on a long elevator, okay? Uh, and so it's not like super, super long, but it's it's enough for you to share just a quick your background and what makes you unique and what makes you so excited about life. How would you how would you start that conversation? Well, I am a big fan of Clay A. Bear's perfect intro, which uh, has me tell people, my name is Laura Gassner-Odding and I help people get unstuck. That's it. I don't need a long elevator ride. That's what I do. If we have a little more time, you might say, well, how do you do that? And I could say, well, my secret superpower is that I am able to look at people and within pretty short order, size them up and understand what makes them great and reflect it back to them in ways that they can either see it for the very first time or actually believe in it enough that they can do something with it. Man, we're only on floor five and, and you have everyone <laughs> like leaning in. There's so many things that we could, we could pivot in so many areas. I'm a big, big fan of the number one investment you can make is in yourself. And if you look at the world, a lot of people are diversifying their ability to have an impact. And, and as a result, um, we're living to a fraction of what I believe our, our God-given potential is. And so you, you opened up a lot of areas. I know that you've written a book. I know that um, you're going to be having a TED Talk that um, we're going to be promoting. I, I'm encouraging everybody that's listening to this uh, to, go, to go watch it. How do you do that? And how do you really uncover that? So my body of work can probably best be summarized in the fact that I have an unquenchable curiosity about the question, why doesn't success equal happiness? It's a great question. So here we go. We uh, are young. We are told, find a job, find a career, find a college, find a major, like pick something and go. And we're like, okay, sure. And so we do it. And we go to college, we go to trade school, we do whatever it is that we do. We start off on our career. And then somewhere around 25, we're like, is this really what I want to do? And around 35, you're like, I'm not so sure. And around 45, you're like, let me get the Porsche and have an affair and have a midlife crisis. Because what happens is we create our path of success based on somebody else's definition. When we are asked yeah. to pick a major, pick a trade, pick a college, pick something, pick an internship, we do it based on a checklist that goes something like, how prestigious is the job? Are you inspired by the leader? How much money are you going to make? How many skills will you uh, will you pick up? Uh, how broad is the impact? Where is the job located? What are the benefits, right? It's this whole checklist. And so we spend all of our time filling in all the boxes on that checklist. And we're like, okay, the boxes are full. Why do I feel empty? And the answer, Caleb, is because we're fulfilling somebody else's definition of success. And so I spent 20 years doing executive search. I was hired by my clients to find and recruit away on their behalf some of the most successful people in the world, which on its face sounds like a hard job, except I was helped by the fact that despite all this success, which is why I was calling them, they weren't very happy, which is why they were calling me back. And I became fascinated 
by that question, why doesn't success equal happiness? And I started looking at my own career and I was like, well, I dropped out of law school. I joined a presidential campaign. I ended up in the White House. I left that White House midway through the first administration. Nobody does that. I went to a marquee executive search firm and then I left when I realized that their definition of success wasn't the same as mine. And I started my own and I um, was super successful at that. And then I sold it to my people right at the time where I could have been just riding off into the sunset and mailing it in and just taking home checks for the next 15 years but I was constantly changing and growing and evolving. And so here's what happens. You make the decision when you're 15, 16, 17 years old, when you literally do not have a frontal lobe, like the part of your brain that dictates good, logical, sound decision-making. And then you're asked to make this decision that's gonna affect the very rest of your life. But we don't give ourselves grace to know that at every age and at every stage, about every seven years or so, we change. Our family changes, the world around us changes, there's a global pandemic, like whatever the thing is, and what is important to us and what success means for us changes. And so my first book, Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path and Live Your Best Life is based around the framework of how we can actually create a definition of success that works for us and lean into that instead of everybody else's definition. Is one of the frameworks that knowing that we're going to die someday and that life is insanely short and that it's not going to matter in the end. I or, or what is like what is the question? What is the hack? Because one of the things, and I'm 26 years old, so I'm like, um, I'm right maybe at that like quarter slash midlife crisis. Yeah. And one, I I definitely in the last couple of years have realized like, oh, I I cared way too much about people and and status items that I don't even care about now. And I would say I was very blessed that I didn't make life-changing decisions when I was 18, 19, 20 based on that, but I definitely was influenced. Um, but I see, I see what you're saying to be very, very accurate with this whole yeah. middle quarter life crisis. Yeah. So I'm going to say with all due respect to Gary V, you're going to die is not a framework. It's an Instagram meme. It's fair. It's, it's just not, it's not a framework. Just like follow your passion is not a framework. It's not even good at life advice. Frankly, it's, it's the spoken word, illegitimate sister of the live, laugh, love tattoo. It is terrible. Um, what follow your passion does is it says, as soon as you find your passion and you follow it, everything's going to be roses and unicorns and Skittles, and it's going to be great. But the minute something goes wrong, the minute it gets hard, the minute you get rejected, the minute you get a no, you're like, oh, I guess this must not be my passion. I should do something else. And that's, frankly, that's horseshit. Now, people will say like, tell me what you would do if you knew you couldn't fail. That's your passion. And I'm like, no, Caleb, tell me what you would do if you knew for sure you would fail, but you would still do it over and over and over until you got it right, because that's Caleb, is your passion. So you're not just following your passion. You're actually investing in your passion. You're listening to podcasts like this. You're reading books like mine and some of your other guests. You're listening to speakers like you and I, and you're learning what it takes to actually get comfortable being uncomfortable. So you're going to die and follow your passion and, you know, I'll be happy when, like all that stuff is nonsense. A framework says, here are the steps you actually have to take. So, you know, you and I have both seen speakers on stage that are super smart and they're super inspirational. And you're like, wow, he's right. But I could never do that. And there's a difference between, wow, he's right. That's a wall of smarts coming at me. And wow, that's right. And I see where I fit in that story. So for me, a framework is saying we should not be pursuing someone else's definition of success, saying I want to find work-life balance, or I want to be happy when, or I need to find purpose, right? All of these Instagram memes that we are pursuing as if like, uh, well, once we put it up in our perfectly curated life, everything's going to be wonderful. 
I tell people that they need to pursue consonants. So hmm. consonants, we know what dissonance is, right? This like cacophony and organ failure, you know, rejection of where you are. You just can't do it anymore. But consonance is alignment. It's flow. It's when the best of what you do is being called upon to solve a problem you actually care about solving. And you're being rewarded for solving that problem in some way that's meaningful to you. It might be money. It might be a way that you're manifesting your values. It may be that you're getting great mentorship, right? There's all kinds of ways to be rewarded for something. It's basically when what you do matches who you are. And what I learned from 20 years of recruiting and interviewing thousands of people at the top of their game, that continence is made up of four things. See, this is where you get a framework, right? Because there's this. four things. This. Okay, first is calling. Calling is that 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 purpose that you have, right? It's the gravitational force that gets you out of bed in the morning. It's the thing that you want to do more than anything else. Maybe it's a societal ill that you wish to solve. Maybe it's a business that you want to build. Maybe it's a, you know, a family that you want to nurture, right? There is a thing, there's a reason why you do what you do. And again, that's going to change throughout your life. We think we have one calling. This is my calling. I was called to do this. No, you're called to do lots of different things. Life is really long. And yeah, you are going to die, but you have a lot of time between now and then. So number one, calling. Number two, connection. Does the work you're doing actually get you closer to that calling or mm. further from that calling? What's on your calendar? What's on your to-do list? What's in your email box? If all the things in your calendar, your to-do list, and your email box are meaningful to someone else, they're probably not meaningful to you. So how do you figure out what to say yes to and what to say no to? It may be that you don't think you have any connection, but what you're missing is actual sight lines into how the work you're doing actually impacts the bottom line or the cause that you want to solve. And that's just a matter of asking questions. But it's really like, if you didn't show up to work tomorrow, would anybody notice? Would anybody care? Mm. Like, does it the work you do even matter. That's connection. Third, contribution. How does this work contribute to the life that you want to live, the lifestyle you'd like to enjoy, the flexibility that you want to have, the way that you want to manifest your values on a daily basis, the career trajectory that you're looking to build for yourself, how fast you want to grow, how far you want to go? How does this work contribute to the life that you want to live? And then lastly is control. How much control do you have? How much personal agency do you have over how much this work connects to that calling and how much does it contribute to your life? Do you have a say in the projects to which you're assigned, the clients that you get handed, the metrics by which your work is being measured, right? Do you have any control over where you do your work, how you do your work, when you do your work, and how much of it do you need? And here's the thing, Caleb, your definition is going to be different than mine. But your definition is also going to be different today than your definition was 10 years ago. And it's going to be different than your definition is going to be 10 years from now. So it may be that you're like, you know what? I don't actually care about being inspired at all. Doesn't matter to me. I want to go in. I want to make a paycheck and I want to come home, be with my family. Cool. If your job gives you no calling, but you want no calling, then you're in perfect consonance with that. That's awesome. So you can have as much or as little of each of these four things as you want, but it only has to work for you. And these bigger definitions of success, they they have this one myopic, you know, singular definition that the fastest and most expedient path to the corner office is the only one that counts. And maybe that's good for some people, but that wasn't good for me. I got to the corner office and I was like, okay, I'm at the top, but the top of what? This is really where I want to be. What did you violate? Did you violate your calling early on because you didn't you you never asked yourself or out of the four C's? What was the thing that was lacking before you had like your epiphany? Well, that's a really interesting question. Uh, 
I was not manifesting my values in a way that was meaningful to me. So I was working in executive search. I was at this marquee firm, the best in the business, doing specifically nonprofit university foundation, advocacy organization, you know, CEO positions. And I would sit in the office, like looking out over, you know, the my client's shoulders at the beautiful park in the background. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to make my numbers this month. Cool. Awesome. I'm making my nut this quarter. I'm going to get the bonus. Except that I didn't because my clients would notice that I wasn't actually focused on their problem, which is, you know, feeding the poor or curing cancer or creating opportunities for the disenfranchised. I was worrying about my problem, which is that I needed to make my numbers. And so I lost the relationship. I lost the trust. I didn't make the sale. I didn't make my numbers. And what I realized was that I went to that firm thinking that I was one of the good guys. I was curing cancer. I was feeding the poor. I was creating opportunities. I was on the same side of the table as my clients, except my clients would look at me on the other side of the table and they would see the invisible profit and loss statement of my firm in between us. And when I realized that my boss was thinking profits first, mission second, and in my mind, I was thinking mission first, profits second, it was untenable to me. So I marched into his office one day, like Jerry Maguire style. And I was like, here's a better way. And he was like, there's the door. And basically he said, you're welcome to stay and keep doing things my way. And I've been doing this way for 20 years. So, you know, I know it works or you can leave if you don't think it's working. And once I realized I wasn't part of the solution that left me in only one place, Caleb, which was that I was part of the problem and I couldn't be part of the problem for the very clients that I had come to serve. So I left and I left with the idea that I was going to create a firm that was going to put my client's missions first and the profits would come. And it turns out I actually made more money Money. doing that. Crazy how that happens, isn't it? Crazy how that happens. And here's the thing, like, I think if you're an entrepreneur and if you're an entrepreneur listening to this, I think that you need to make decisions in your business and in your life based on prioritizing three things. Number one, maximizing profitability. Number two, maximizing impact in the world, right? Number three, maximizing your own personal freedom and flexibility. And I'll give you two of the three. You can make every single decision prioritizing two of those three things, but you can't prioritize all three. That's impossible. So I chose to maximize personal freedom and flexibility because I was like 11 months pregnant when I walked into that boss's office. So, you know, I had my first child like six weeks She's later. Like on, on the way out. Yeah. Yeah. Literally both me, 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 me and the baby were leaving at the same time, different exits. And, and, and uh, pro tip, don't do that. Don't start a business when you're crowning. <laughs> it's probably the first time in the history of your show somebody said the word crowning. Apologize if anyone's clutching their pearls. But um, uh, pro tip, don't do that. Uh, but here's the thing. I wanted to maximize personal freedom and flexibility. I also wanted to maximize impact for my clients. There was a reason why I was doing this work for this particular set of clients and not Hilton Hotel chains or Coca-Cola. Like I, There was a reason I was doing that. And I figured, number three, if I did the work well, the profits would come. And it turns out that it did. I ended up making more money. I ended up making more money over the course of 15 years that I ran that company every single year, year over year, grew hundred percent every year. And I made more money in the sale than I would have if I had profit, if I had uh, maximized, uh, maximizing profitability, even in the sale of the business. So I think as an entrepreneur, you have to decide what matters to you and it can change, right? Like you can decide for these three years, I'm going to prioritize, you know, my personal freedom and flexibility. And then my kids are going to be in school. So now I can maximize profitability and I can go hard, but you can't switch every day and every week. 
and and you're saying it is okay to choose a, for a season to go all in on profitability like your boss he was in alignment to what he wanted to do oh here's the deal if your purpose in life is to cure cancer that's awesome i am so glad that you're on this planet if your purpose in life is to be home every day at six o'clock and have dinner yeah. with your family, that's awesome too. If your purpose in life is to buy a Maserati and a beach house, then that's also awesome. But yeah. we get in this place and look, I spent 20 years doing this work for mission-driven yeah. organizations. So I feel like yeah. I'm an unimpeachable source on the sentence that I'm about to say. Your purpose does not have to have the words lofty or higher in front of it for it to be valuable. Nobody is standing at the gates of heaven with like an abacus and a clipboard counting up your good deeds. If what you care about is making a lot of money, maybe you want to get your family out of debt. Maybe you want to, you know, have 16 houses. I don't know. Maybe you actually are somebody who's able to make a lot of money and your best use is to make a lot of money and then write a check to that organization that's curing cancer instead of going and working at the organization that's curing cancer and hoping that you get a donation. Yeah. You're, you're someone I could talk to all day um, because this is this is you're really talking about the root of, I think, the foundation of what people are going to build their lives off of. Yes. Um, and it would be a shame and because I'm in the wealth space. It would be a shame to try to help somebody, but they not being clear about where they want to go. So a couple examples of this is it's like if you want to get to where you like if you want to go to somewhere, you got to know where you want to go first, but then you yes. could walk there, you could drive there, you could fly there. So a lot of times we're talking about efficiency, but we're not clear in where we want to go. That's that's an example that happens yes. a lot in our space. Now, I want to I ask you this. You, you talk about, you kind of throw out this, like um, everyone talks about follow your passion, which I also think is not very practical and uh, misleading because really the question is like, how do you follow your passion? But then you also talk about calling and then you've used calling and passion as kind of like words that you've exchanged. So, so my question to you is, that's great. I, I, I'm pretty clear in what I want to do. And it's, it's given me a ton of clarity and confidence. And it sounds like you have that for yourself. If someone's listening to this or watching this and saying, okay, how in the world do I figure out my passion or my passion, my calling? Like, I desperately want that. Mm-hmm. What is a question? Mm-hmm. Cause my, my, one of my questions, and it's not perfect. And this is where I want to ask you is if money wasn't an issue, like if it just, if it didn't matter, like what would you find yourself doing? And people then say travel. And then we're, I'm like, okay, when, when you travel a couple months and that gets old, like, and I try to get deeper, but I don't have the perfect question. I'm wondering if you do. Yeah. So, you know, the, the way to go deeper with that in particular say, okay, well, what is it about travel that you like? It's exploring new places. It's the logistics of figuring out the puzzle. It's trying new food. It's meeting new people, right? What are the particular things that you like? Like, I love figuring out the puzzle of the logistics. I love trying new foods. I love going to new places. I don't necessarily love like making small talk with lots of random people. It's not my thing, right? So like some other people might say, I love talking to all the different people, but I'm a little finicky with food, right? Like every, there's a reason why people like that. So uncovering that, okay, you like logistics, you like puzzles. Maybe you'll be interested in working in supply chain, right? There's, there's, there's so many things that you can say, well, these interests, these joys, these skill sets, right? Figure out what causes you joy, where you pay attention. But the way that I usually like to ask people about it, is I like to ask them about their fundamental state of leadership. And so there was a, an article written um, many, many years ago, maybe 20, 25 years ago by Robert Quinn in the Harvard Business Review, where he writes about your fundamental state of leadership. And the fundamental state, fundamental state of leadership, Caleb, is who are you when you are the very best version of yourself? 
you are making it rain. You are crushing a deal. You are on stage getting a standing ovation. You are, you know, making the big presentation to the boss. Or maybe you're in the back room working on that spreadsheet. You're putting the presentation together. Maybe you're helping a colleague or a friend or a loved one through a very difficult moment in private, right? It doesn't matter if it's public, private, loud, quiet, doesn't matter. It just means that it's the moment where you feel like you are firing on all cylinders, right? Like I said earlier, everything that you do, the best of what you do is being called upon to solve a problem at hand and you are rewarded for that, solving that problem in a way that you, you know, appreciate. Who are you in that moment? Because the odds are that that's probably where you're going to find your passion. That's the thing that turns you on. That's the thing that excites you. That's the thing that gets all of your brain to fire up. So figure out who you are in that moment. And then you craft a career that gives you more rather than less of those moments. I love it. Are you a fan of any like personality test or a self-awareness frameworks? I'm a big framework person, as I've been asking, like, is there any, is there any area that can help you go deeper? Or is it just one of those things where like you've, you've asked so many good questions and if someone actually re-listens to this and answers, it's going to, you're going to figure out pretty quickly what that calling in. And then you can self audit and say, okay, connection, like how I'm contributing, like, how is this adding up? And because if you don't have the first one, it's hard to do an audit. Yes. So I will tell you that I'm actually not that huge of a fan of personality tests. And that does stem from two decades in executive search where my clients would always say, well, have you had the client, have you had the candidate take a personality test? And I was like, no, are you going to take a personality test? And they're like, well, why should we take one? I'm like, well, if you know that they're an IMP seven, whatever, and you don't know who you are, then how are you going to figure like, it doesn't make any sense. Like you don't know how you're going to work with them. I also think that for women in particular, some of those personality tests can be a little damaging. So if a woman is more of a, you know, intuitive or more of a thinker or more emotional something, and they get upset about something, then the men in the office are like, oh, well, that's just because you're emotional. You're good. And it just kind of like, I, I feel like people take those tests and then they suddenly think that they have a PhD in psychology and they don't. And so I feel like I've seen them use more for bad than for good because people just don't know what they're doing. However, I do happen to have my own test. (laughs) I have a very intense test at limitlessassessment.com. And there's actually 14 questions for each one of the four C's. So there's seven questions for your compulsion and seven questions for your quotient. So how much do you want calling? How much do you have uh, calling? How much do you want? How much do you have for each of the four C's of calling, connection, contribution, and control? Because again, as I said, if you don't want calling in your life, then, and you don't have any, then awesome. You're in, you're, you are in consonance with what you have. So I would encourage people who are like, I'm not really sure where to start. The test takes about 20 minutes. It's kind of intense, but you know, for people who've been listening for the last 25 minutes, I'm kind of intense. It's your life. You should yeah. take it kind yeah. of intensely because yeah. you are going to die. Thank you, Gary V. Right. Like we should take our lives fairly seriously. Yeah. So it takes a little bit of time, but at the end you will get a, a, a fairly long PDF that tells you exactly what you you need to do and what the next steps are to get more of calling connection contribution or control in your life see i love interviews like this normally i'm just interviewing money nerds that are telling us about <laughs> certain like how how real estate works or rare earth metals or you know the internal rate of return of, a, of an investment and i i love this because at the end of the day if you get if i you're talking with confidence and it's because of confidence and conviction and it's just so super super fun so thank you yeah thank you well, for, i don't know i don't heat. know a thing about nfts but or bitcoin but i can absolutely tell you to how to 
you know, change your career to make your life a whole lot better. How do you think this relates to the wealth space? Because it's interesting. My definition of wealth is is not resources because I wouldn't trade places with Warren Buffett. No way. So I'm valuing my life more than $100 billion if you take that definition. But I look at it more from like relationships, times, talents, and resources do matter when it comes to the wealth equation. What is your definition of wealth? And then what have you learned in your journey to say like, hey, if you follow some of these tips or hacks, you're going to have a better time with this whole wealth game. I don't know how how much you get involved in this subject, but this is a lot of people listening to this are entrepreneurs, are mm-hmm. investors that are into um, just trying to wealth hack and, and trying to live a better life, use, being better stewards of their resources. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I would define wealth as having as having the two things. Number one, having the luxury, the freedom, the privilege of being able to make decisions mm-hmm. that you want to make, right? So, you know, it doesn't have to be F you money, but, you know, maybe F off money. Right? So yeah. I think having a little bit of cushion so that every decision isn't, am I going to be able to put, you know, dinner on the table next week? I, I think that the luxury of choice I would say is part of wealth. But I think a bigger piece of it for me is probably confidence in decision-making. So are you able, do you feel like if you're going to take a risk, whether it's a risk in your finances or a risk in your career or a risk in where you advise your kid to go to college or a risk in whether you're going to eat that two-day-old sushi or not, right? Like, do you have confidence in the decisions that you're making? So do you have access to the resources, the networks, the knowledge, the levers that you need to be able to have a full enough data set? Because we never have a full data set, but a full enough data set to make a decision. And do you know what plan A will be if it works out? And do you know what plan B will be if it doesn't? So we had this idea that failure is finale. Like as soon as I fail, everything's going to be terrible. It's the end of the world. I'm I'm done. And I, you know, I, I gave this speech once uh, and um, there was literally an astronaut in the front row. And I was like, failure is not finale. It's fulcrum, except for you, <laughs> sir. <laughs> but for everybody else in the audience, right? Like for you, it would definitely be finale. But for the rest of us, failure is really the place where you learn and you iterate and you change and you grow and you innovate unless you don't have that privilege and that luxury of choices, right? So do yeah. you have the confidence to know that if things go south, right? If everything goes sideways, do you have a way to have a plan B? But more often than not, I find a lot of entrepreneurs don't have a plan A. They're so busy worrying about the plan B. Here's what I'll do if I fail, that they don't think about what they'll do if they succeed. And I was giving a talk once a day um, at a university at an entrepreneurship class. And this uh, guy in the back row raises his hand and he was like, so um, let me ask you a question. Like, what would you do if you failed, if your business didn't work? And I was like, well, I don't know. You're an entrepreneur. You're in an entrepreneurship class. What will you do if the business you want to start doesn't work? And he was like, oh, that's easy. I'll just go get another cubicle job and write another business plan until I, you know, save money until I can start my next business. And I'm like, great. What will you do if your, if your plan works? And he just like looked at me like he never thought of that before. And I think so many entrepreneurs find themselves in this non-wealthy mindset in this non-wealthy space because they're so busy planning for what if it goes wrong that they didn't think if it goes well, what will I do? How will I hire more staff? How will I grow? How will I scale? What will the next step be? And that's actually going to be the subject of my next book, Wonder Hell, which is about this moment where you're like, oh my God, it's working. It's amazing. Thank God. It's amazing. It's great. It's wonderful. And also, I've never been so exhausted 
and full of stress and anxiety and uncertainty in my entire life. It's actually kind of hell. I thought success was going to make everything easier, but it's actually created a faster pace and bigger goals and, 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 and a bigger hunger. And, oh no, I'm in wonder hell. What do I do? So I think those are the ways that I would define wealth. How, how do you, how does fear play a role in keeping people back? And, and this is actually special because I'm actually in my childhood home right now. And I left a bank job at 21 years old to start betterwealth.com. Yeah. And, and so it was, it was interesting. And it was, this tells you how cushy my life was because I've never like parents are together debt, like both, both of them are successful. Like I would never, like, I would never be on the street if I failed, but I was like, right. I had to like realize like my fear is actually what people think of me and like this perception of failure. But then when I, when I was able to label that and I was like, okay, am I like, that was helpful because before I had like this, like fear, but I couldn't label it. And what I've found Mm -hmm. is a lot of people just are not self-aware of like their feelings, but like the reason they're not doing what they, I think they know what they need to do is a fear that they might not be willing to talk about, or that it's just, they're not self-aware. Am I on onto something or is it something that I'm just- No, I, I think you're right. My favorite Eleanor Roosevelt quote is this, we would worry much less about what other people thought of us if we realized how seldomly they did. Yeah. Nobody is paying attention. So there's this, there's this, you know, we all have this imposter syndrome worry, right? And, and uh, there's a a name for it. I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but it's there, there, there's actually a thing that happens when you have imposter syndrome. So you try to act all big and confident. And I'm like, oh, Caleb seems really confident. I guess I should act all big and confident. And then you're like, oh, Laura seems really big and confident. Maybe I'll act even bigger and more confident. And then you act even bigger, more confident. So then I do it again. And the two of us are in this like vicious cycle where we're just lying to ourselves and each other. And if we just were like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And you're like, neither do I, let's figure it out together. We could actually go farther together. And I would say that for me, you know, my very first job, um, like a grown up job was working in the White House, as I mentioned earlier. And I walked into the White House and I was not one of the best and brightest. <laughs> I was definitely like literally wearing my mother's old hand-me-down suits, literally. And um, everybody else was there and they'd all gone to prep school and private schools yeah. and their daddies were like, you know, big donors. And I was like a volunteer who scrapped my way into this volunteer job. And they're all sitting around the table, like with their New York Times all highlighted and dog deer and they're sitting and they're making all kinds of notes before, you know, we're about to start a staff meeting and I'm looking around, looking at my notepad and it's empty. And I'm like, I guess I'll just make a list of grocers I have to buy because everyone looks like they're doing stuff. And I was so busy trying to pretend, trying to fake it like I made it, trying to like pretend like I belonged, that I was missing the relationships that were forming around me. I was missing how people, you know, where they sat at meetings and how they prepped and who they talked to and what they were wearing and how the deals got made. And I was so busy trying to fake it and trying to look like I belong there, trying to be so worried about what everyone else thought of me that I missed out on this huge opportunity to grow. So, you know, I, I, I think that this fear that we have that we're going to be found out that um, we're going to fail, that people are going to laugh at us. Like nobody's paying that much attention because everyone else is feeling the same way. And in fact, in the research that I did for my next book, Wonder Hell, I talked to, when I realized I was in this moment of like, oh my God, this is amazing, but also I think I want more. How do I do that? I'm going to flop. What am I going to do? I talked to a hundred people. I talked to startup unicorns. I talked to Olympic medalists. I talked to glass ceiling shatterers. I talked to everyday people like you and like me. And what I learned from them is that each one of them at every single stage, 
along their entire career, every time they did something they didn't think they could do, they experienced crushing imposter syndrome, doubt, vulnerability, uncertainty, fear, and just exhaustion and burnout. Every single one of them at every single stage. I mean, Sally Krawcheck, who runs Elevest, right? I mean, she was fired on the front page of the Wall Street Journal twice, twice. She's the only person in history who's been fired on the front page of the Wall Street Journal twice. And she was like, yeah, I still don't know what I'm doing. She runs a $2 billion investment fund right now. But every single one of these people at every single level and every single new devil felt all of these things. So I guess what I would say is, yeah, we're all hiding it. We're all like children wearing our mother's hand-me-down clothes and we're all faking it, but every one of us is going through exactly the same thing. So I think we just need to stop pretending like we know more than we do and open ourselves up by asking questions and saying, I'm not sure how this works. Can you tell me more? I'd like to learn more. I'm interested. Nobody's ever been like, ah, you're interested. Screw you. They're like, awesome. Great. You're totally jacked up about the thing I'm jacked up about. People love that. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me because I agree people aren't thinking about us, but even if they were, why does that matter to us? And it's just yeah. it's just interesting from a standpoint of like, does our identity come from what you think of me? It's just it's just interesting because I think another form of leadership and form of self-awareness is figuring out where I, our identity comes from. Because if your identity isn't tied up in certain things that like it goes back to the control element. If you can yes. control where your identity comes from, then you have a pretty cushy gig, everything else, you're kind of at the mercy of what your perception of what the world or whatever that thing that controls you. Yeah, well, actually, um, that's interesting that you say that. There's a sociologist named Charles Horton Cooley, who in 1902 coined a term looking glass self. And the looking glass self refers to our identities are not what I think of me and they're not what you think of me. They're what I think you think of me, right? Yes, yes. That's crazy. So if my identity is what I think you think of me, then that means that if my identity is crap, I need to get better people around me, right? Like that's not necessarily a self-confidence issue. That's an inner circle issue. Love it. So many other questions. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to come up with only three more if you, if you have, you're good with that. Number one is what is the biggest mistake that you've made since going off on this journey, giving advice to other people that have are some of the most successful people in the world. Like what are, what are, when you look back and say, Oh, I gave this person advice. It could even be like last week. Like what, what were some of the mistakes that you can share about, you know, knowing what you know, now you would have given different advice. Well, that's a really interesting question. I don't want this to sound ridiculously egotistical, but it just might. So I'm just going to say it. I don't know that I've given advice that I would take back necessarily. I would maybe give the advice differently. I think the mistake that I have made as uh, an executive coach has been sometimes I want the person's goals more than they want their goals, right? You can't want it more than somebody else wants. And a lot of times somebody gives you a look good goal, like it looks good on my wall. I don't really necessarily want it. And then you spend a lot of time and a lot of energy pushing them towards a goal that they're not as hungry for as you. And you just, you can't be insatiably hungry for someone else's goals in your own life. And your clients certainly aren't going to be insatiably hungry for goals if they're not their own. So I think it's not that I've given bad advice. I think I've miscalculated the person's hunger for the advice. Got it. Appreciate you sharing that. Second is around politics. What, what, What in the world's going on? Is there a solution? <laughs> Did you ever run? Do you ever like 
I, what, what frustrates me is we have some talented, incredible people in the United States that are amazing communicators. And I don't know if people just don't take communication class or whatnot, but it's just, I just don't understand. And as someone, I was just in DC two weeks ago and wanting to get more involved in politics. Part of me goes like, man, this will, this will be a blast. And part of me is like, I don't want to touch this with a 50 mile foot pole. What are your thoughts from your experience? And obviously I, you don't have to share anything that you don't want to share. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I mean, you know, Ann Coulter has trolled me all over Twitter for my politics. Like <laughs> at this point, I'm not shy. Um, I feel like when you've pissed her off, you've done something right. So no, I would never run. Um, and I would never run because politics has gotten to a place where it's no longer about the candidate. It's about the candidate and their family and anybody they've ever, you know, encountered. And my family's private and they don't want to run. So I don't, it's not fair of me to do that to them. Also going back to the earlier part of our conversation, um, I have been privileged with a, um, an, an incredible career through which I can earn a pretty lucrative salary. And, and I have a, I have not the smartest brain in the world, but I've got a pretty good Rolodex. So I can earn a lot of money and I have a pretty good Rolodex. My best role in politics is helping find candidates who are awesome and raising a lot of money for them. I can make more change by getting the right people to run for office by supporting them early so that they can raise more money than running myself. That would be solving my own egos need to help, but it wouldn't be solving the bigger problem, which is getting the right people in office. So um, I would never run at this, at this point. Uh, what needs to be done is for people like you to run, is for people who actually are invested and excited and want to make a difference and who are um, thoughtful and curious and interested in the world um, and talk to people of all different walks of life. Um, I'm obviously squarely on one side of the aisle, but you know, I, I, I do also support a nonprofit that finds veterans and helps them run on both sides of the aisle. Because my thinking is, if you are a veteran, you have already shown a predisposition to serve your country before your party. And I know we're gonna have people on both sides of the aisle, so we might as well have better versions of both of them. Yeah. Are you a fan of term limits? You know, it's an interesting question. I am a fan of term limits. I don't think anybody should be in the Senate for 60 years. You know, there's yeah. a certain point where it gets ridiculous. But I also do think legislating is not easy work. Like it is yeah. fairly complex and it takes a little while for someone to learn how to do it. So I don't think somebody should just have two terms. Right. Do I think that they should serve for more than 20 years? Probably not. Um, yeah. But I, I, you know, I, I am, it's not that I'm not a fan of term limits. I'm not a fan of gerrymandering and I'm not a fair fan of the electoral college. So okay. I think that if you have a system and, you know, I just talked about fundraising. I also think we need to get money out of politics, but while there's money in politics, <laughs> I got to play the game that exists, right? You got to play the game that exists. Once that game is over, then awesome. And I'm happy to try to get people in office that want to end that game, but it turns out yeah. nobody in office wants to end that game because it's very good for incumbents. So I think rather than saying we need to have term limits, we actually need to have districts that represent the actual districts so mm -hmm. that the people can decide to term limit somebody who's no longer serving their needs. If somebody's yeah. in office for 50 years and they're doing a great job for their constituents, right. awesome, great, they should stay. But right now, there are our congressional districts are these weird maps that are drawn to benefit one party or the other, whoever's in power at the time where they're in the state office, where they're actually creating these, these districts. So, you know, people go and they vote once every four years, but yeah. really who you're voting for, for your state rep and your state yeah. Senator and your governor is going to make a much bigger difference yeah. I, overall. 
I 100% agree. And I think regardless of your beliefs, I think really being involved in the local level and really being educated instead of just reading, you know, Drudge Report headline. Right. I think that's going to have a ripple effect that can serve yes. your community and the nation. Yeah. And the truth is, unless you are literally a, milit- a member of the military on active service duty, the person who you elect for your school district for your mayor, for your city council is going to affect your day-to-day life much more than every four years for president. And by the way, where do you think the pipeline of talent comes from? It comes from your local. So like, if you're worrying about like, you know, your taxes and the tax levy and what's happening to your streets and is your community safe? It's your local, it's the local people. You should be voting for dog catcher. You should vote (laughs) for everyone. I'm excited for my last question. And it's it's the legacy question, that, which goes like this. If this is your last day on earth and you can't give away your TED Talk, your book, this podcast, anything that you've ever done, you just have one conversation with the people that you love. What are you going to make sure to cover and highlight in that conversation? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, it would be my husband and my children, of course. I think I would tell them that my life was better because they were in it. Wow. And that I would hope that they continue to live their life in a way that gives that gift to everyone they encounter. You're a ball of energy. You're an encouragement. You're a light. And um, now I'm crying. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's very like, it's interesting because that legacy question, one of the things that I try to encourage people to do is, is think with the end in mind, not the whole Gary Vee, you're going to die, but it's right. like, we got one life and it's fun to meet people that are doing their calling, that are contributing that are controlling their elements and and using that to give. And so thank you for giving up your time. I want to be a promoter of what you're up to, where we'll put a link to your TED Talk, your book, your personality test, even though you hate personality tests, but this is this is going to be like, uh, it's, it's the investment in someone who really wants to be self-aware. Is there anything else that we can push people to and how can, how can the Better Wealth community support what you're up to in the world? Yeah. I would just say, look, my name's Laura Gassner-Odding. All my friends call me LGO. So you can find me at HeyLGO on all the socials and HeyLGO.com will get you to my website. I send out a newsletter every Tuesday that I call Hello Tuesday. And it's about the things that I know to be true. So you can check that out. You can pick up Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path and Live Your Best Life, anywhere fine books are sold. And my newest TEDx on Wonder Hell is going to be all about my next book, Wonder Hell. And you can learn more about that at wonderhell.com. Thank you. You're beautiful on the inside and out. It's an honor to meet you. And and so thank you for all that you do. Well, thank you so much, Caleb. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.